pick back up. Let's see where we're in verse 37 is where we're at. But as we continue on through the last um, verses of this chapter, we have this final lesson. There have been a total of four lessons for us in this chapter. Um, for that Jesus' disciples were being taught as they were on their way to Jerusalem for that final trip there where Christ would be crucified, uh, buried, and rise again. Uh, They were to celebrate the Passover feast. But the last lesson, the final lesson that we get in this chapter um, is a lesson on hypocrisy. And according to Webster's Dictionary, hypocrisy is the practice, listen, it's the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. And I think that pretty much sums it up. And really, since the church is the only one in the world today, we as Christians, in my opinion, that are claiming to have moral standards, I think we become an easy target when when it comes to people calling us uh, hypocrites. But the word hypocrite originates from the Greek word hapokrites, which in this word is, as many of you know, you've heard me say it before and probably studied it out on your own, but it, it was a name or a title that was given to the, the Greek stage actors, the ancient Greek, Greek stage actors who had put, put on a mask, a mask called a, a prosopon, um, which literally means person, uh, but it's, the word is prosopon, and they would put on these masks in order to reveal a, a particular character or an emotional state. You've seen the mask, maybe with the, with the tears and the, the frown or the big smile. They would accentuate the emotion. And they would wear these masks to reveal the, the character or the emotional state to the audience they were acting before as they pretended, listen, as they pretended to be something they were not. And this is where we acquire our word today, hypocrite. And in these last verses of chapter 11, we're told that Jesus... Think about this. Jesus was invited by one of the religious leaders, a certain unnamed Pharisee, we're told, to come over to his house and to have dinner with him. And um, when, when what we see is that Jesus accepted the invitation, but when he reached the guy's house, this Pharisee's house, um, he walked right in and he sat down for the meal. He did not participate. Jesus did not participate or exercise the ceremonial washings before sitting down to eat. And in doing so, what we see is that the hypocritical heart of the Pharisee who had invited him over was exposed. And knowing, we're told, what was in the Pharisee's heart or what the Pharisee was thinking, Jesus responded by giving us this quote-unquote spiritual analysis of the, these religious leaders um, in, in total. The, the whole group of them who had become, at this point, a detriment to the people they were leading and for doing so, um, Jesus condemned them in his spiritual assessment for their hypocrisy. And when it comes to hypocrisy, I think it's safe to say that none of us likes it when a person acts like a hypocrite, right? Um, and, and I don't even like it when, when I act like a hypocrite. Uh, and I do at times. And, and no one likes, at the same time, even when we do act like a hypocrite, no one likes to be accused of being a hypocrite. It's an offensive thing. It's not a, a, a something we strive to be or something we strive to do. But the truth is, the truth is, is we all put on a mask. We've all put on a mask at one time or another in order to hide or conceal what is true, as we have pretended to be something or someone that 
we are not. However, when we consider hypocrisy in regards to spiritual things, we must realize that spiritual hypocrisy is the worst kind of hypocrisy, and, and it's risky business. Spiritual hypocrisy is risky business. And these words that Jesus spoke regarding the evils of hypocrisy should encourage us to not hide behind a mask in any area of our life. It should be open. It should, we should be honest um, with ourselves and honest with others because in that place we can come before God in humility and, and genuinely and honestly ask him to change us from the inside and to conform us into the image of his son Jesus, so that process of sanctification that we're all in. In light of this, it's my prayer this morning that we would find it better to be known in life as an honest sinner rather than a lying hypocrite. Let's pray. And Father, I do ask that that would be our prayer. As, as hard as that is to admit our faults and failures at times, to let see, people see um, genuinely who we are with our struggles and our... our, our um, in those times, Lord, where we, we don't measure up uh, to the standard that you set, or even the, 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 um, where we choose evil things, where we choose to do the wrong thing, and we want to hide it and conceal it, um, either to continue on in it or because we're embarrassed or ashamed. Lord, we know that you know. And Lord, we, I would, and I pray that we would, as a church, would, would desire more to be, a, uh, be known as honest sinners, as people who sin, rather than those who, who try to cover it up. And Lord, we know there's, there's great encouragement when, when we see others around us who are struggling with the same kind of things in there, or have struggled with the things that we struggle with, or are struggling with, and they've been honest and encouraged us, and, and to say that there's hope for us as well. Um, without looking down uh, in a condemning way. And, and I pray, God, that we as a church body, we as a church family would be honest with ourselves, honest with each other about our great need for you. And I pray, God, that we would do that again this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, also, real quick, I want to pray for the Grandview Christian Church. It's one of the churches in our communities off Justice Center Road. The pastor over there is Pastor Todd, um, and I know him. And uh, Pastor Shane is the associate pastor, or is the the, the um, uh, youth there, pastor there, and he's a, he's been a blessing to the Bridge Youth Center and um, also uh, to our own youth ministry as we've done things together. So let's just take a second to pray for that church and for those pastors as well. And Father, we do lift up Grandview Christian Church to you, and we thank you, God, for the believers there, our brothers and sisters who, who are perhaps even sitting in chairs this morning listening to your word be taught and, to, um, and singing songs of praise. And we're grateful, God, that you've put other believers in this world who stand, uh, that we can stand shoulder to shoulder with and I pray, God, that you would give us unity with, with them in you, Lord, that we would have oneness together in you. Lord, you're the head of the church, not just our church, but the church. We are your bride, and we are your people. And so we lift up our brothers and sisters to you. We lift up uh, Pastor Todd and Pastor Shane, and we thank you, God, for their hearts, um, which is uh, desirous to serve you and to serve others. And I pray you would bless them today. I pray you would grow that church. I pray you would grow them in the knowledge and understanding of who you are. And Father, that um, they too would, would shine as lights. They too would stand in truth. 
and would not compromise. That they too, God, would be concerned not only about the outward things, but the inward things that you can only change in us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verse 37, it says, And as he spoke, okay, speaking of Jesus, it says a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Everybody go, oh. <laughs> it's like your mom. Did you wash your hands? Let me see. No, it's not like that. We'll get into it. But then the Lord said to him, now your Pharisees, now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and the dish clean, but your inward parts are full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but rather give alms of such things as you have, and then indeed all things are clean to you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manners of herbs and pass by justice or, or righteousness and the love of God. These you, you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and and greetings in the marketplaces, and what are you, scribes and, and Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are like graves which are not seen, and the men and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. Then one of the lawyers answered, literally the same word there is scribe. One of the scribes answered them and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you also reproach us. I, f- I find it funny, funny that there's these two sects of religious leaders that are there. And, and the one sect, the scribes, are, are okay with Jesus' words of accusation and condemnation to the Pharisees until, until Jesus mentions them by name and says, Oh, by the way, you too. And, and, and they're offended by this. And so in verse 46, and he said, Oh, woe to you, lawyers. Woe to you also, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with, with one of your fingers. Woe to you for, you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you, you approve of the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will, they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. And what are you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge and you did not enter in yourself, and those who were entering in you, you hindered. Once again, those who entered into truth, you burdened. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they, may, they might accuse him. All right, so we begin to go back to this um, set the context for it. In verse 37, we're told that Jesus was speaking. As Jesus was speaking, is is like if Jesus was interrupted, is what we're being told here, that one of the, the Pharisees, an unnamed Pharisee, a certain Pharisee, asked him to come and eat dinner with him. And, and this should seem to us like a, a, an odd thing at this very moment, considering the words that Jesus had been speaking at this time were words that accused the religious leaders of specifically overall being spiritually blind. 
And, and man, that's quite an accusation when you understand that the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, were the ones who were to be leading God's people into spiritual things. And Christ was standing there and making all these accusations against them, and the totality of the accusation was as they were spiritually blind. And in the middle of this, this, this um, it wasn't a compliment, in the middle of this rebuke, in the middle of this accusation and condemnation, um, this Pharisee asks, hey, you want to come over to dinner? And if from last week's study, if you, rem- if you remember with us, if you were here, the religious leaders, both the scribes and Pharisees, had accused Jesus um, of casting out a demon by the power of Beelzebub, literally by the ruler of Satan. And in doing so, they were making another attempt to, discre- to discredit Jesus, saying that he wasn't, in fact, from God at all, that, that he, he was working with Satan, and maybe even that he was undercover, one of, one of Satan's undercover agents, by casting out this demon. And um, in doing so, in their discredit, they, 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 they made this accusation specifically against him because Jesus had just previously said that he was from heaven. He had claimed to be sent from heaven, and he had claimed to have been sent by God, who more importantly, he said, is my father, which was, was quite a claim. However, Jesus did not let their false accusations against him go unanswered. And as he refuted them, he pronounced um, not only a, 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 a revelation to their spiritual judgment, uh, their spiritual blindness, but he pronounced a judgment against them for their unbelief. Because not only were they acting, or not only were they spiritually blind in how they led the people, they were in a willful state of blindness as they, as they refused to believe who, who Jesus was revealing himself to be. And, and that judgment, in that judgment, Christ said that even the Ninevites, who were a pagan people who had believed the prophet Jonah and ultimately repented of their sinful ways, would rise up in the day of judgment and condemn those of them who were refusing to believe in him. So in light of this, we should wonder why, why one of these religious leaders would suddenly respond to this open rebuke by interrupting Jesus while he was still, ba- still speaking and basically say, hey, I know I just accused you for working of Satan, but do you want to come over to my house and have some dinner? Doesn't make any sense. And the point is, is, is it sets the stage for, for what we read, contextually speaking. And, and when we see this, we, we come to this idea or understanding that it's unlikely that this religious leader was really interested in sharing a friendly meal with Jesus. On the contrary, he was probably, I think, in the, in, from the looks of it, the first part, he was probably trying, probably looking to get himself and Jesus, who had so effectively at this time pointed out the foolishness of these religious leaders, he was, he was looking to, to escape gracefully, to, to get away from the eyes and the ears of the crowds of the people who were watching uh, the religious leaders' failed attempt to condemn Jesus, once again failed attempt. Not only this, but as we read here in verses 37 and 38 of the text about what took place when Jesus sat down to dine, it's apparent that this Pharisee who was part of the group of people who had been looking to discredit Jesus was only looking for another opportunity to accuse him and to, to find some fault, some fault in him. And this is why the Pharisee in verse 38 were told, quote-unquote, that he marveled. He marveled when Jesus did not wash before dinner. Now, this reference to not washing before dinner does not mean that Jesus' hands were dirty and that he had not washed off the dirt or the germs before, before sitting down to eat. Rather, this reference to not washing 
before eating is connected to the ceremonial washings that the Pharisees would go through before they ate any meal, every meal. And this process was really an elaborate ritual that still takes place among um, Hasidic Jews today. And we, you, if you're in the group with us, you may have seen, uh, even in the restrooms, uh, the, that they have these pitchers. They will not wash their hands just under the running water. They have to fill up a pitcher of water and, and, and go through a pouring process and, and it's, it's even expanded beyond what we're reading here now in these ceremonial washings. But what they would do is, is they would pour water over a person's hands three different times from, from, a, from a, a, a basin. And um, then they would lift their hands up into the air, and, and, they, and they do this still, and allow the water to run down until it would drip off of the elbow before they would even begin to dry it. And, and it's important to note that the ceremonial washing that they partook of and that they are still partaking of today in many different ways and in many different facets was never something that God had commanded the general public or the general population to do. In fact, it was only, it was only the priests in the temple who had been commanded to do this ritual, and it was only to be done when they were ministering in the temple. And these religious leaders knew this to be true because in Matthew chapter 15, where they had previously, in, in, in an account where they had previously condemned Jesus' disciples for not washing in this way before they ate, they asked Jesus why his disciples transgressed the traditions of the elders. In other words, they admitted that this was, this was not a command from God, that it was something handed down from the elders. Nevertheless, this, these Pharisees, or this particular Pharisee, who was like, clearly like all the other religious leaders, who were only concerned about the ceremonies and traditions of men which made them look outwardly good, this guy marveled <gasps> that Jesus had not washed in the ceremonial way. Now, this word marveled simply means that he was astonished that Jesus would not do this. And even though, the, um, even though we're not told how he had expressed his astonishment over this perceived unholy thing that Jesus had done, we do read here in verse 39, if you want to look, that before he could even speak one word about it, and maybe he was going to speak some words, I imagine it was more than just eye rolls and sighs that were taking place. Imagine he was getting ready to speak too, but before he had the chance to, Jesus responded. And once again, he began to expose the foolishness we're told of the Pharisees. Now, the fundamental fault that this Pharisee and the other religious leaders had made, which Jesus pointed out in verse 39, if you look there and read, is that, is that they wrongly believed that righteousness was a matter of external action. Okay? And, and that, that, we can fall prey to that as well, where we believe that righteousness is, is simply a matter of external action or behavior. Yet in doing so, the Pharisees which ultimately is the result. You can't help this if you're only focused on the outward action or the outward behavior like the Pharisees. But what happens as a result of that is, is the, they, we see, minimized, the import, the minimized and even ignored the importance of the internal thoughts and intents of the heart. And in doing so, they were very careful to keep the outside clean by adhering to their lists of traditions and ceremonies, but we're told that they ignored the wickedness that was on the inside. And Jesus pointed this out, pointed, pointed out the foolishness 
of, of this way of thinking, and he did so by illustrating, giving us an illustration, and comparing their belief to a cup that was made clean on the outside and left dirty on the inside. You ever run into that? I don't think there is any one of us that thinks it's okay to drink from a cup that is clean on the outside and dirty on the inside. And if you've ever drunk out of a cup that has appeared to be clean, especially like in a restaurant or something, that, that, that appeared to be clean and, and later you've come to discover maybe with your last drink that there was a chunk of something stuck to the bottom of it. <laughs> you understand just how wrong it is to be concerned about the outward cleanliness of the thing while ignoring the inward cleanliness of something especially in regards to spiritual things in our own lives. And so this way of thinking and the way of the life that the Pharisee had chosen to live, it was foolish. It is foolish. And Jesus said so in verse 40, did he not? And he pointed out that the inside could not be ignored by, by presenting this question, a rhetorical question. He rhetorically asked, did God not make the outside as well as the inside? And because the obvious answer to this question is yes, we see how God ultimately is equally concerned about the thoughts of the intent of our heart as he is with the way that we are living our lives. And so it's not that the Pharisees did not know that God made both the inside and the outside, but they had come to believe they had come to believe through religious acts, through traditions and ceremonies, and, 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 and really from a prideful heart, they'd come to believe that it did not matter what the inside looked like as long as the outside was looking good. And in my opinion, this way of living is even more repulsive than drinking out of a dirty cup that has dried chunks of, of who knows what stuck to the bottom. But with this being said, we need to understand that it does not mean that the outside is unimportant, right? Because God's made both. He's made both the inside and the outside. However, what we understand in this is that the way to make the outside, guys, the way to make the outside, the, our behavior, our actions, the words we speak, how to make the outside genuinely pure is to first make the inside pure, the inside clean. But what we know is this is something that only God can do. And that's why it requires humility and submission, honesty, to be, be, be willing to go, I'm a lying sinner, or I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an honest sinner and not a, and rather than a, than a lying hypocrite. It requires us to come to God and to cry out to him in, 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 in order for him to make us clean. And you know what? King David, I, I love this psalm because of the background to it. King David wrote about this very same thing after, you remember, he had been confronted by the prophet Nathan. In, in regards to his own hidden sin with Bathsheba, right? We know the story. David had sinned. He committed adultery with another, with another man's wife. He himself was, was married. And in order to hide his sin because he got this lady impregnated, he, he, he sinned again and he sought to have her husband killed. He murdered Bathsheba's husband. Yet when Nathan came to him, he told him this story about this rich man who had many sheep, you remember? And then there was this one poor man who had one sheep, and the rich man came and, and slaughtered and stole the, the, one, the one sheep from the poor man that was really his pet. And, and David said, who is this man? Tell me who he is, because I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna to have his head. And, and Nathan, under the, the empowering of, of God's discernment, said, David, you're the man. You're the man. 
And David had been living hypocrisy in, in, a, in a state of hypocrisy for, for so long. Outwardly, he was making it all look good outwardly, but inwardly, there was adultery, there was sin, there was murder in his heart. And yet when he was confronted, he wrote this psalm in response in Psalm 51, knowing what he needed, knowing that he, knowing that he was powerless to change what was going on in the inside, and looking to the mercy of God, and he said in verses 6-10, through 10, he said, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. You desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden parts, and in the hidden parts you will make me to know wisdom. Who gives us wisdom on the inside? God. When? When we realize he desires truth in the inward. You, Lord, behold, you desire truth on the inward parts, and in the hidden parts you will make me to know wisdom. Therefore, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all of my iniquities and create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. That should be our prayer. When we look to the inside and see these things, when God searches our heart and reveals to us these areas where we're living in a hypocritical way because the inside is dirty and yet we're trying to behave in a way that is contrary to what really is going on in the inside. Now this honor to surrender, uh, this honest to risk surrender to, to God, what I think we're being called to, which David expressed in the psalm, uh, uh, this honor surrender, this honest surrender of God uh, of what is on the inside is what Jesus, I think, really in a loving way, with a heart of love, was pointing these self-religious, self-religious leaders to do. He wasn't just exposing their sin with the hopes of condemning them. Christ did not come to condemn, even those who were seeking to condemn him. His desire was for what God's desires for us, is that we would be confronted and then that we would we would honestly surrender to God. And, 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 and so in verses 42 through 52, I think we read this taking place in the words that Jesus spoke. And in verse 41, Jesus had said that they needed to give alms. He was giving them solutions to the problem. They needed to give alms of such things as they had in order to be clean, he said. But to explain what he had meant by this and, and for our own understanding, we see that Jesus made a contrast in verse 42, if you look there speaking a first woe against the Pharisees. And, and what he was saying as he contrasted this and calling them to give zom, he's saying not just a tithe or a tenth of what they owned, which the Pharisees we know were faithful to do, they faithfully did, down to even giving a tithe of all of their herbs and spices in their cabinets. And by this, Jesus was, what he was doing is, is he was digging deep into the heart of the matter, and he was pointing out that even though they gave a tithe of everything they possessed, they had only done this as an outward thing in order to fulfill the law, in order to meet the religious obligation or the regulation. And the difference between giving a tithe and giving alms, which Jesus said, by the way, you should be clean, is that giving a tithe fulfilled the letter of the law, but it did not fulfill the spirit or the heart of the law. The reason for why God would call us to be givers. And this was what was lacking in the lives of these legalistic, these legalistic religious leaders. However, the contrast, the giving of the alms, was a donation. The giving of an alms was when you saw a need beyond the tithe. And we've all had those opportunities where God's made a need known. We've tithed and we've, we've, we've fulfilled the letter of the law, so to speak. But God then goes, do you see your brother in need? 
You see this person hurting? You see this person suffering? That's the alms. That's the gift to those who are in need. Beyond that, and the gift of the alms, which is a donation to a person in need, is typically, is typically motivated from a heart of compassion, right? Their pain in my heart. And this is what fills the spirit or the heart of the law in regards to us being called to give. In that, the type of giving that God desires from the Pharisees and from, from us in our own lives is the kind that is done freely and flows out of the heart, a heart that is grateful, a heart that is in love with God. And these are the right reasons to give. Now, Jesus never said that they should not have tithed. Do you hear that? Jesus said that they should not have tithed. On the contrary, at the end of verse 42, he said that they should have tithed, given a tenth, as well as given alms to those who were in need. And, and I point this out because the same is true for us, as we are also called to give a tithe and, and to give to those in need because we have this heart in us that is grateful and we have this heart that is in, in love with God who has first loved us. In other words, it's not about how we give, but why we give, Right? It's not about how we give or even how much we give, but, but about why we give. And if we give because we see it as something that God requires of us only as a regulation, then we're no different than the Pharisees who sought to look good on the outside, but we're far away from God on the inside. And so Jesus denounced this in verse 42 by saying, Woe, curse, woe to you, a condemnation upon the Pharisees. And in the verses that follow, Jesus denounced the religious leader's sins five other times with the same phrase, woe to you. And the next three of these woes specifically denounced the Pharisees for their wrong priorities. Take note of that. We see application when we break it down. He denounced the Pharisees and spoke woe to them for their wrong priorities. And, and this issue of tithing but forgetting about the important things like justice or literally righteousness and love, that was, the, that was the only the first of, of wrong priorities. The second woe that, that Jesus declared had to do with the fact that these Pharisees had put their reputations above their character. Man, that's a dangerous thing. But they had done this. They put their reputation above their character. They cared more about their reputation than they did about their Character And in doing so, Jesus points out in verse 43 that the Pharisees wrongly believed that sitting in the right seats in the synagogues and being acknowledged by the right people out in the public was an indicator of some, somehow of how spiritual they were. All these external means that people could see. Oh, you're so spiritual. Look at the, the clothes you wear or, you know, I got a tie on. It's communion. It doesn't make me spiritual. I do it to honor the Lord. Right, but it's this. It's we can fall into these same kind of things in our own lives. And the Pharisees desired the best seats in the synagogues, and they desired these open greetings, which consisted ultimately of elaborate praise. It was almost a form of worship because they were in. They they were they. Uh, this was a, a public way. Both of these things were a public way of giving honor and recognition to someone who was believed to be great or perceived to be great or wonderful. And the Pharisees loved this. So because they desired the honored seats and they desired these public accolades, they were careful to behave and speak in all the right ways while in the public eye. 
man, we got to be careful of that. Sometimes we won't be honest about how, how big of a sinner we are or the struggle of sin that we have because we want other people to think a certain way about us. But you know what? They're going to find out anyway. You know what happens then? It's like, oh, you're a hypocrite. You know, and not only that, it's just the standard for people where there's no grace, there's no mercy, there's no love. Because when we're doing that, then there's this, we begin to believe the lie ourselves. Oh, yes, I am holy. Look. And we begin to judge others and condemn others. And that's, that was the heart of the Pharisee. Now, when we consider a person's conduct and a person's character, we should realize that, listen, the character can be defined as the way we live when no one else is watching. How do you live when no one else is watching? That's an evidence or, 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 or a definition of, of a character, reveals your character. And a person who has a good moral character is someone who does the right thing even when there are no other persons around to recognize it. In other words, reputation is what people think we are, while character is what God knows we are. And this is why our character, this is why our character is what matters most. Because it matters most what God thinks, what God sees, not what man sees, not what man thinks. And this is why Jesus had spoke the second woe against the Pharisees who apparently cared more about what others thought and saw than what God saw than what God thought and saw on the inside of them. Now, the third woe that Jesus spoke is in verse 44, which denounced the priorities of the Pharisees. That and 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 um, it would have this 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 denouncing would have enraged all the religious leaders who were present. And from the response of the lawyers here in verse forty-five, who kind of speak into it at this moment, the lawyers who were also known as the scribes, it's apparent that they were also displeased with Jesus because they felt reproached, or that Jesus literally it says they says that you reproach us. It, what that means is that you're treating me shamefully, and Jesus was speaking honestly. Yeah, in order to understand what Jesus was saying when he compared them to unseen graves that men unknowingly walk over, we must realize that the Hebrew people were always so careful to never become ceremonially defiled. Because if they became ceremonially defiled, especially these religious leaders, it meant that they could not go to the temple, nor could they practice any religious activities for seven days and at the end of the seven days, they had to go through a very arduous um, purification ritual process or a ritual of purification. And according to Numbers chapter 19, what we're told is that touching a dead body or even going or even a grave that contained a dead person was one of the things that could defile a person in this way. So to ensure this was, was not that this would not accidentally happen, we know that in Jerusalem that the, the graves there in Israel were carefully marked. The doors of the, the, the caves where these burial tombs were painted bright white and they were done yearly around Passover so that those who were journeying to the city would not accidentally become defiled and not be able to partake of the Passover um, feast and celebration. And, and so they would paint the, the, the tomb white so that everybody could easily identify the tomb. But, Je- the tomb. but Jesus compared the Pharisees here to unmarked graves and clearly implied that they were the cause of defilement to those who they were coming in contact with. And in doing so, Jesus was saying that they were actually hurting people. They were harming people, even though they believed that they were helping them somehow become holy And in short, 
Instead of helping the people, the Pharisees were harming, and they did so by their hypocrisy, literally by putting on a mask, literally by pretending to be something they were not and encouraging others to do the same. Now, in light of Jesus' response in verse 46 to the scribes who were literally experts, they were students, they were, they were students of the law, experts of the law, we see that Jesus was putting them in the same boat as the Pharisees. You make a no distinction here. And, and in spite of their surprise to Jesus' accusation or Jesus accusing them alongside the Pharisees, the fact of the matter is the scribes were probably, listen, they were probably guiltier. They were probably more guilty of these things that Jesus was condemning and accusing the Pharisees of. And this is due to the fact that the scribes, they made it their business to not only keep the letter of the law like the Pharisees, but they also interpreted the law. And in doing so, they would make, we're told, other laws for people to keep an attempt to prevent them from even coming close to breaking the laws. In other words, they were like our government. They make laws for the laws. (laughs) So it's understandable why they also felt the sting of Jesus' words and spoke up here and tried to defend themselves. These men who made laws, man-made laws for the laws of God. However, Jesus did not let him off the hook once again, and he spoke three more woes, and he used vivid illustrations. If you're you're keeping track and uh, and keeping notes, the first illustration he used to explain what these guys were like, he used the, the illustration of a heavy burden. He once again made another reference to tombs, and we'll look at that, but also, lastly, he, he spoke of keys, and he did so to answer them and said first in verse 46, if you'll look, woe to you also lawyers or scribes, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers, even one of your fingers. And this reference to loading men with burdens is intended to paint a picture of someone. It's not just loading up your pack animal and letting it carry behind you. It's this idea of overloading. It's this idea of overloading a pack animal beyond every reasonable means. And it was not too long ago that I had received an email that graphically illustrated this for me. The email contained many different pictures that, uh, of things that had been overloaded. I think there was like a Ford Festiva with like, it gone to the Home Depot. You guys may have seen it. It was like, had like, like 32 pieces of plywood on top of it. And, and it's like, oh, come on. Um, but one of the pictures was of a train in India. Have you guys ever seen that picture? It's been going around. I mean, in this picture, it had so many people in it and on top of it and hanging from it that you could hardly tell that it was even a train that all these people were in and on. And it looked to me as if the train would not be able to move under this massive load. And this is the same type of picture that Jesus was painting for the, the lawyers in order to describe what they were doing. For they were professionals. They were not amateurs. They were professionals when it came to adding to the burdens of the people as they loaded them down with all of these lists of rules and regulations and traditions so that the people, Jesus said, they can't even move. But worse than that, Jesus said that they, listen, this is even a greater condemnation, that they said that they had no heart, no love behind what they were doing. There was, their, their intentions weren't even good because, because they would not even lift one finger to help the people who they were burdening, burdening down to help them to carry these burdens. Now, the fact of the matter is there are still many people today 
who are like the scribes and who like the Pharisees who wrongly believe that they're helping people by weighing them down with religious burden, burdens. Well, you got to do this and you got to do that and you got to do this and you got to dress like that and, you know, Christians do this and Christians do that and, and um, it's wrong. And weighing down someone with heavy religious burdens is not what Jesus came to do. In fact, the Bible tells us that he came to set us free. He came to ease our burdens. He came to give us rest. This is why he says in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and, my, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Why? He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we know that the Lord's burden is light, and we know that this is possible because when Jesus came, he took what we were not able to carry upon himself. He raised a whole lot more than one finger to help us to carry this. He carried it all upon himself. The debt of our sin, which he paid, with his, paid for with his life, the full weight of the law, which he perfectly fulfilled with his sinless life that he had lived, and ultimately the condemnation that we deserved, he carried through his own suffering so that we may have life. Now, placing heavy burdens on people was not the only thing that the scribes were good at. They, according to this fifth woe in verse 47 that Jesus spoke, were also experts. They were experts at honoring the prophets who had been martyred by the very religious establishment which they pronounced to belong to. So the Pharisees, figuratively speaking, were like hidden graves, right? But the scribes, figuratively speaking, built elaborate tombs by the way they lived their lives and the burdens that they were putting on people. Uh, they built these elaborate tombs for all to see, and in doing so, they put forth this appearance of, of honoring the men of God who had been martyred by their own people. But they were no different than their fathers who had come before them, who had killed the men that God had sent. Why? And this is what Jesus was getting to the condemnation, because they too were not listening to Jesus, the one whom had been sent by God. And their ultimate crime would be that they too would, would crucify the one whom God had sent, God's Son. Lastly, Jesus in verse 52 declared that the scribes were guilty of robbing people of the knowledge of God's word. The key, the key that unlocks everything. The very experts of the law, the very students of God's law, God's word, knowing it, they were guilty of robbing people of the knowledge of the word of God. And that's what verse 52 is about when it said, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves and those who were entering you hindered. And so it was bad enough that they would not believe in Jesus and enter into the kingdom themselves, but they were hindering others from going in, not only just by putting heavy burdens on them, but also by trying to discredit and destroy Jesus, the one whom God sent, the, the one who has the keys to eternal life. And in doing so, they as religious leaders should have been pointing people to Jesus yet they were trying to take away the very key that opened the truth found in God's word. Jesus is God's word. But they allowed themselves to be blinded to the truth by their pride and self-righteousness. However, Jesus, who is the way, Jesus, who is the truth, Jesus, who is the life, exposed once again 
these religious leaders sin, instead of repenting, but instead of repenting, guys, as I think maybe we might need to do and some of the things that God's speaking to us about this morning, what they see is that they hardened their heart and they further, they responded further in anger. Listen, verse 52, and as, as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. If the worship team wants to come up, we'll end with this. Because in these verses, these last verses, what does it illustrate for us? I think it illustrates that hypocrites, it clearly illustrates that hypocrites do not want their sins exposed. Why? Because it hurts their reputation. This, this false reputation. So instead of opposing Jesus, we see that these men should have been seeking his mercy at this point. They should have fallen on their knees and cried out for mercy. But they were unwilling to receive correction. It's painful. The Bible tells us that painful is correction. That, that correction is painful. But yet it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And that God disciplines and corrects those whom he loves. And Jesus was correcting them. He was disciplining them. He was rebuking them because he wanted them to repent. To cry out for mercy. Yet they preferred, they, were, they preferred to stay in their own sinful thinking and, the, and in their own sinful habits rather than repent and learn from Jesus' rebuke. But the way they respond is the same way that, that we may do at times, that many do at times when, they, when we're faced with correction and the truth of God's word and where instead of humbly receiving correction, uh, there's this outrage against the accusation that's been made. Guys, listen, close with this. Proverbs tells us that those who refuse correction do so because they, they hate those who correct them, Proverbs 9, 8. In Proverbs 15, 12, it, it says that they don't listen to correction, those who are being corrected to the one correcting them. Um, and lastly, in Proverbs, or Proverbs, excuse me, in addition, Proverbs 13, 1 says that they do so, and in doing so, they despise their own soul. That's the most valuable thing I think we have short of our salvation of our soul, is our soul. The eternal part of us that goes on. Proverbs also tells us that the character, about the character of those who refuse correction. And I love this in Proverbs 12.1. It basically says this. You can go look at it. It says they're stupid. <laughs> and in Proverbs 15.5, that they are foolish. And, this, and the Pharisees and the scribes were all of these things because they began to attack Jesus, cross-examine him in hopes that they could can somehow trap him again in some heresy and arrest him. And, and I'll end with this. I think this is a very disgraceful way to treat the Son of God, but yet it's also in us. And I pray that we would not do that this morning. Let's pray. Father, I pray, God, that we would honor and respect your Son, Jesus, and the words that he spoke here Lord, we believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he has the keys to eternal life, that he is our only hope in this life and in life to come. And Lord, we don't want to live as hypocrites. Lord, we want to be honest about our sin and about our need for you. So Lord, the areas of our lives that we're living in a hypocritical way, I pray, God, that you would confront us, that you would convict us, and Lord, that we would submit and that you would change us, that you would make us new. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys stand.